0: Welcome to the 14th episode of a Think Wildlife podcast. Today we have Vidya Venkatesh, who is the founder of the Last Wilderness Foundation. So welcome Vidya.
1: Hi Anish, uh, thank you for having me over at your podcast. Uh, so um, as as you already mentioned, I'm Vidya Venkatesh and uh, I'm the director for Last Wilderness Foundation. Um, I, the, the organization is about uh, a decade plus old, about 12-13 years old. Uh, So I've been with the firm, with this organization for almost about uh, 11, 12 years now.
0: So you did a PCOM with a focus on accounts and worked in a couple of MNCs. But what motivated you to take a career shift into the conservation sector?
1: Um, So very interestingly, you know, during my college days, uh, that was when I attended one of the WWF camps, uh, which actually drew me towards uh, nature and wildlife. Uh, that three-day camp is actually what fascinated me and and then there was no looking back I've always been uh, passionate about nature and wildlife so through my uh, corporate career from 98 onwards since I started my uh, corporate jobs uh, all my holidays all my vacations and weekends have always been into the forest or into the mountains so so that's my uh, passion and uh, I pursued the hobby for almost about 13 14 years of my corporate career uh, assuming that that might fade off at some point of time or you know thinking that it's just another hobby like everybody has uh, but this didn't go off uh, so by the towards towards the 12 13, 14th year you know I started thinking very seriously about how do I uh, you know get this more and more into my life and how do I you know shift or make the shift into wildlife conservation uh, Actually it was in wildlife conservation back then I just knew that I wanted to be in wildlife. Um, So my shift was a little bit of a transition phase that I had about a couple of years. Uh, So initially, when I um, quit my corporate life, I started looking for opportunities or or I started looking for avenues where I could spend more and more time into the wilderness. Uh, So apart from traveling into the wilderness, we also a couple of our friends, we had started a a travel firm where we used to conduct group tours and take uh, tourists into the uh, park. So that also gave me a great insight into the different parks of India, um, Northeast, North India, uh, birding tours, herb tours. So all of it we've done in those couple of years. Uh, But then that also wasn't something that really satisfied me because I wanted to do something more on ground. Um, That is when I started looking for opportunities in conservation. And uh, I joined Sanctuary Asia for a year. Uh, Around 2010 11. I was with Sanctuary Asia. I led the Kids for Tigers uh, initiative. And, uh, in 2011 is when I joined, uh, last wilderness foundation. So since then there was no looking back.
0: How difficult was this transition from MNC to the conservation sector?
1: Um, so honestly, I, I think I've been lucky that I wouldn't say it was difficult. Yes. It needed a lot of planning. Uh, so I did do a lot of planning being from a financial background, uh, you know, finance planning was very, very key to what I was doing because Uh, Moving from my MNC sector to an NGO sector or into the field of wildlife is not going to be as lucrative as an MNC definitely. So I had to have my backup plans. I had to have uh, sustainability for a few months or maybe a year. Uh, I had to keep uh, finances in place. So that was one big uh, planning that I had to do. Apart from that, of course, I had to have a fallback just in case I wouldn't survive or I, I was not able to sustain in the sector. Then I always um, probably had to fall back on the MNC sector. So that was the other planning that I had to keep in mind saying, you know, finance, finances, uh, finances and uh, uh, career. These two, uh, I, do, I did think of a backup plan. But uh, pretty much, you know, like I said, I've been lucky that I got a breakthrough uh, with Last Wilderness and it was exactly what I wanted to do. Um, So when I met the founder director Nikhil Nangle, I think it was pretty much like a, 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 you know, a calling saying that, yes, this is exactly what I wanted to do. When he explained the job role to me, I was very, very uh, interested and there was no uh, second thought about it. So, so yeah, um, it just came to me uh, without too much of a uh, difficulty, I would say.
0: How have your experiences with the MNC sectors in in your conservation career?
1: So uh, there's a lot of parallels that I draw from the MNC sector here. Uh, just that this sector probably does not have as many, uh, or this when I say this sector, the NGO sector probably does not have as many people who are experienced from a project management perspective, a people management perspective, or for that matter, problem solving skills. Uh, So in the corporate sector, we had a whole lot of uh, skill honing mechanisms in terms of either a mentor or a training, um, you know, a plan put in place. So we were all uh, trained to do certain roles as managers. So uh, through our career in the corporate life, we were trained for different roles and all of it from problem solving to negotiation skills, to people management skills, to team building skills. Uh, to project management, deliverables, quality deliverables. All of it is something that uh, I even today use in my day-to-day life because without that, I don't think it would have been easy for me to uh, get this far in this journey.
0: Coming to the last Wilderness Foundation, which areas do you guys mostly work with?
1: So um, our work is primarily in the field of human-wildlife conflict mitigation, Anish. Um, But when we see human wildlife conflict mitigation, there are many aspects to this particular domain as well. Uh, And uh, LWF focuses on the community angle. So we partner with the forest departments, specifically, we work currently we've been working in Madhya Pradesh. So we partner with the forest department very closely to understand uh, the conflict areas, the conflict situations, uh, geographical, um, uh, also understanding where and why the conflicts are happening. And then work with the communities accordingly, because that is one area where the forest department uh, always needs help to manage the local communities. Uh, That's slightly not into their forte. Uh, You know, habitat management, wildlife management, all of it is being trained. They, They are trained on all of it. But handling local people and working with communities is something which usually the forest department finds it quite difficult. And they would like to take help of NGOs to work in that domain so we work in the domain of trying to uh, work with communities and reduce the human wildlife conflict situations uh, around tiger reserves
0: recently the world celebrated a 40% increase in global tiger populations india managed to double the population from 2010 in 2018 while this is certainly good news this does have a lot of implications for human tiger conflict what have you been observing with trends in tiger human conflict in the last few years
1: so um Anish, the the fact that the numbers have increased is a great, uh, you know, fact, I would say it's a great news. It's a great fact. But like you already mentioned, the challenge also comes along with it, right? So the challenges are uh, with the given limited space that we have, and with the increasing number of population in India, there is always going to be this human wildlife conflict that will exist. Uh, The only way out is coexistence. Um, You know, India has had a great history in uh, trying to preserve and conserve its natural heritage, um, including the species. Uh, we've probably been one of the pioneer countries uh, who's managed to preserve maximum number of species um, you know, within, within the country, uh, though we've had some species that we've lost. But uh, having said that, our religions, our beliefs have helped a long way uh, in terms of coexisting with animals and uh, the thought processes that people have at large is of protection and preservation uh, than destroying and killing. So that's you know helped us in a long way. So coexistence is the only mantra that we should be working with, and that's the only way we could survive. Uh, so ever-increasing number of tigers may not be useful for India uh, because we also have an ever-increasing population of humans. Uh, so with that, ever-increasing population of tigers may not be very helpful. But of course, we do have spaces even now where the forests are conducive for tigers the habitats are conducive for tigers and we still don't have tigers there so there is a long way to go before we can say we are at saturation point point. Um, and I don't have a number right now to say how many tigers can India accommodate but at the same time there will be a limit when we say okay this is all that we can you know have in our country
0: that is going to be a situation. My next question for you is what are some ecological factors are there in tiger population increase which contributes to human wildlife conflict?
1: So the ecological factors majorly, uh, of course, development is one of the biggest factors, Anish. You know, uh, the linear developments that we've been having in our country, uh, that has actually put a lot of things uh, at stake. And uh, though we are trying to put mitigation measures in place, it's still not going to be the same. But having said that, uh, with the population of what we have in our country, it's not going to be easy to stop the development as well. So we need to strike a balance between development and trying to conserve and preserve our natural heritage and wildlife uh, so that you know, we also have uh, convenient facilities for people living in this country as well as uh, trying to keep the population safe. So ecological factors coming back to the point, um, you know, development is one of the biggest threats that we have. Uh, apart from the fact that, uh, you know, the reduction in the areas of, of forests or protected areas. So, the population growth, I would say, which is actually the demand where the forests are being cut down and the developments are being, uh, you know, are, are, are taking place, is one of the major threats that I would say, apart from a lot of other climate change um, threats that we have. But population is the common factor that I would say across all of these threats.
0: India has about 300 million people living in and around forests. So how has human-wildlife conflict impacted the opinion of these communities towards conservation?
1: Um. So I think, like I mentioned, most of the people, if you ask them around the Tiger Reserves, you know, so there are tribal and non-tribal communities living around Tiger Reserves. Most of the people, if you ask them their views about wildlife, they're just going to say that, yeah, I mean, they've always been there. You know, it's like asking anybody from the city saying, what do you think about cars around you? You know, and and you're going to say, yeah, I mean, I've always lived with cars around me, right? So they've always lived with wildlife around them. So it's not like they would hate wildlife or they're not going to like wildlife around them. But uh, when there is an economic loss to any individual or a family, that's when there is a situation that arises. And, uh, you know, that situation is usually not so much of a, just an economic loss. Of course, it is an economic loss. But it's also a lot to do with some local uh, political issues that arise around, around these conflict issues. So there could be a political leader in the village or in the vicinity who would, you know, um, you know, encourage the villager to say, "Oh, you have to fight for your rights. Oh, you have to do this." So the person who actually has undergone uh, uh, loss may or may not be necessarily in a situation where he hates wildlife or he has a conflict with wildlife just because there has been a death or just because his cattle has been taken away or just because his crop has been traded by a herbivore, he's not going to have vengeance or revenge uh, that he would want to take. But sometimes there are people around him who who arouse these situations and that is also the the troublemaker in a village or in in a vicinity area um, which is what we like to tackle or we try to tackle most of the times when uh, there is human wildlife conflict situation. But otherwise, at large, I would say in India, uh, people living around protected areas, around tiger reserves, uh, are not uh, against wildlife. They would love wildlife. They river in many of the places, in many of the villages in, in central India also, they river the, the uh, animal, the large cat, which is a tiger, and they call it bagheso so people worship the animal, uh, even though they sometimes incur losses. But they still think that it's a sacrifice to the god, and and they um, you know don't feel revengeful about it. Very very uh, you know uh, rare situations where there has been a revenge killing, where people sometimes poison the characters of a cattle, or sometimes light a fire in the forest. But those are really rare situations when the uh, conflict has been building up over a period of time. It's not a one-off instance, but that one instance would probably have triggered an action. Uh, That is when this whole uh, conflict situation arises. Um, Our work or the the suggestion would be to have a continuous dialogue with people around these protected areas. So it's a huge uh, onus on the forest department and the local authorities to have continuous dialogues with the local communities so that these situations are actually... Uh, nip to the butt itself, and they don't, uh, you know, uh, accumulate to to burst out into a massive uh, conflict situation.
0: Government does does pay a lot of compensation to the victims of human wildlife conflict. However, this has not been so successful. Could you just talk about some of the challenges to this compensation scheme?
1: So, in in Central India, that I can talk about, Anish, uh, the scheme I think has been uh, uh, quite successful. I don't think it's a unsuccessful scheme. I I think it's pretty successful. Successful uh, to the extent that, you know, if even if it's a a cattle which has been injured, uh, the treatment for the cattle is paid by the government. If there is a a cattle which has been killed by the um, carnivore or a big cat, then that is also being compensated. A human life death is also compensated. So all of these compensations are already existing. However, the issue is not with the scheme not being uh, successful. The issue is with sometimes the middlemen where the schemes are not reaching the ground villages. Uh, However, MP has done a brilliant job of having a a system called as Lok Seva Kendra, where uh, it's a public redressal forum, a grievance forum where people can actually log in their complaints and they can track their complaints even through a phone call to understand uh, where and how uh, the progress has been about their complaint. And there is a feedback mechanism and there's an escalation mechanism for every complaint, including a a, um, compensation um, grievance that has been logged in there. So I think MP has done a fantastic job in terms of Lokseva Kendra being present out there. Um, so so the scheme has been pretty successful even in the remote parts of the country.
0: That's great. And talking about solutions towards human-wildlife conflict, so you guys work with a lot of local communities for a lot of awareness programs. One of your key projects is the Village Kids Awareness Program. I think it's mostly in Bandhavgarh. So could you just talk about this project and why you're targeting local children for outreach events?
1: So, uh, you know, as per uh, the... the of course lwf's vision also says that you know we would love to have uh, a natural heritage in india respected and protected by its people so the ultimate protectors are going to be the local people in any protected area or a protected forest and without the support of local people uh, the forest can either be protected or destroyed by them right so the idea is to get a positive buy in from them or to get a buy in from the locals to ensure that they themselves understand the importance of protecting the forest, instead of trying to uh, be the police all the time and and, and trying to uh, punish the people locally. Instead of that, if we are able to get the locals on our positive side of conservation, then there are so many more hands and legs and eyes that are available for protecting a a forest. Now, how do you create that positivity or how do you create that kind of manpower amongst the locals? Obviously, you want to uh, understand and you want to let them admire the forest like the way you and me do. Because you and me have been looking at the forest uh, as a tourist. And we admire the forest because the forest has never done any wrong or any loss, has never incurred any loss to us. But the people living there have incurred losses. At the same time, uh, it is important for them to also understand the positive side as to why should they protect the forest from a holistic perspective saying, what is the impact on you know climate change on global warming on uh, on their lives you know more importantly on a day to day basis why should they protect the forest if they are able to understand these small concepts then they will definitely uh, be on the positive side of conservation and to make them understand this uh, i think there needs to be a large large uh, outreach program outreach and awareness program in our country where the locals are involved And the concepts are clarified and they understand the importance instead of just looking at the negative side. They would understand how it is helping the entire country and, of course, in their day-to-day lives as well, if they are able to protect the forest. So this small concept that we're talking about uh, usually is packaged in a capsule form and uh, spoken to with the village kids because they are the ones who are unbiased, who do not have any blockages in their head saying, oh, this is how I want to lead my life. They're open to ideas, they're open to suggestions, and they can be easily molded. So the kids are one of the best audience that you can actually work with. And when they grow, you at least know that generation onwards, you have a good um, you know, uh, local population who can protect the forest going forward.
0: That's great. And a lot of your outreach programs have been targeted at the Pardhi community. So can you just talk about some of these programs, especially your nature guide training program?
1: So the Pardhi community uh, has been very special for us and, and one of our uh, you know key projects uh, that we've been working in the last decade. So the Pardhis are a community who used to be erstwhile hunters, Anish. And uh, they were actually uh, blamed for the extinction of tigers in Panna. And that's how they came to limelight. They've always been hunting uh, large mammals and birds, but because the extinction of the tigers happened in Panna, that's how they came into the limelight. Um, Since then, the Forest Department, the Education Department, uh, the local authorities have all been trying to work with this community to ensure that, you know, it doesn't happen again, the dilemma doesn't happen again. At the same time, MP Forest Department also planned to reintroduce tigers into Panna in 2009. So actually in 2007 onwards, so when they uh, really started working on the reintroduction program, uh, they realized that without working with the Pardis, it's going to be impossible task to bring in tigers and make it a successful project. So in order to make the tiger introduction a successful project, they started working with the Pardis. And that's when we stepped in. Uh, initially, WWF used to work with uh, this project. When WWF stopped their project and there was no other NGO working there, LWF had stepped in and, and uh, since then, about 2012 onwards, we've been working with the community, almost a decade now. And uh, we're trying to help the community to get away from the stigma of being poachers, from the stigma of being you know, uh, a tribe which has always been into criminal activities. So we're educating the kids. The government is also supporting a lot. The forest department is supporting a lot in educating their kids, in providing alternate livelihoods and then also providing them uh, stability to their stay, uh, their uh, home facilities, etc. It's a slow process, a very slow process. But with uh, some consistency that we've managed to get in the program, uh, there has been some results. In fact, there are a few kids who've graduated last year and this year. Similarly, the guide training program. So, so our idea was to harness the skills that they have from the forest. So they've been nomads and they've lived in the forest all their life. So uh, trying to understand what skills they have. And if we could use their skills for their own benefit and in a, in a good way, uh, you know, then they could probably earn a, a living out of it so their understanding of the forest was so good that we you know had to bring in a component where they could earn out of this knowledge and nature guide was a good source of income for them because panna being a tiger reserve we it already had a footfall of tourists coming in uh, apart from the tiger safaris that people take nowadays people love to go with the Pardis. they love to listen to the stories that the Pardis have to say about the forest and uh, you know they have some beautiful skills of mimicking uh, animals like uh, the sloth bear the tigers some birds so they mimic bird calls they mimic mammal calls and with that help that is how you they used to hunt that's how they know the calls but with that they also uh, you know share the knowledge with the tourists these days and that has been a great uh, source of revenue uh, you know for the Pardi community so we've, we've just been trying to help them with the traditional skill sets that they have
0: Okay, So you guys also work extensively with the forest department in capacity building, particularly with the forest staff. So uh, how how have your experiences been working with these forest staff?
1: So working with the forest staff has been, you know, another experience, Anish. I think uh, hats off to the ground staff, really hats off to the way they work with such uh, limited facilities that are given to them. The expectation from the ground staff is the maximum, whereas the facilities given to them is a minimum. Um, the forest guards and the staff who live inside the forest, they're expected to do foot patrolling day in and day out. So night and day, they're supposed to do foot patrolling, Anish. However, they probably not even provided proper shoes and jackets and torches and you know um, raincoats for, for the patrolling work so how do we expect them to really do their day to day jobs it's a very very challenging situation that they are in forget their safety i mean the safety is absolutely not considered because i don't think they are uh, you know they they get too much of a, a medical facility or insurances and all are covered but uh, they don't even have you know the equipments that they could probably protect themselves from an animal or they could protect themselves from the rain from the winters the harsh winters that mp faces uh, they don't have jackets, they don't have raincoats. So today we all need to probably join hands because without these foot patrol soldiers that we have, I mean we call them soldiers, without these foot patrol soldiers, I don't think our forests are going to be protected. So we need to actually, as a country, join hands to do more for these soldiers um, and, and also provide them with basic amenities, basic facilities where they could sleep safely, where they could live safely in the forest uh, only then we, could, we can we expect them to really protect the forest for all of us.
0: How can we help these rangers out?
1: Um, very simple, actually, Anish. Uh, there are, uh, you know, the requirements are very very basic. Like like I mentioned, rain jackets during monsoon, winter jackets during uh, winters, shoes for them for the patrolling. If we can give them hats, caps, uh, we can give them some backpacks, water bottles, torches. These are the basic necessities that they need on a day-to-day basis to do their duty. I'm not even talking about their personal life. We're just talking about what they need to do for their duty. So these are the needs that they have. And again, if uh, people are interested, students are interested to raise funds and provide with these jackets, we could give numbers to them. Each park officer uh, you know, at the ground level will be able to give a number saying how many jackets do we need? How many shoes do we need? It can be either locally sourced or we could get them from your end or from anybody else who would like to sponsor. But these are some basic amenities that they ought to have for their day-to-day working.
0: Okay. Also, one of your key projects at LWF is your work with alternate uh, livelihoods. Could you talk about some of your projects and why is it necessary to provide alternate uh, livelihoods to help mitigate human wildlife conflict?
1: So, like I mentioned earlier, uh, we're trying to work on human wildlife conflict mitigation, Anish. Now, when we say mitigation, the reduction of dependency of people on the forest is what we are targeting so that people don't need to enter the forest uh, where they used to collect some leaves, tendu leaves, mahua flowers. So, that's how they used to earn a living. But uh, trying to avoid entering the forest would be the best way so that there is no conflict situation inside the forest at least. Um, If we request them to avoid entering the forest, then we ought to provide them with an alternative. See, how will they earn an income? How will they earn a living? How will they feed their families? So which is why an alternate livelihood is the best source that we could find living where they are. We're not even expecting them to migrate from into cities or migrate from the place where they're staying. But in the place where they are living, in the place where they're staying, with the limited resources available, if they could uh, get an alternate livelihood, that would be the best option. Um with the baggars like I was mentioning in Kanha, there is a community known as the Bagas. Baggars are part of the PVTG, which is particularly vulnerable tribal group of communities. And uh, they have a beautiful skill that they make jewelry out of the beads, small beads. And they used to wear it for themselves. They used to make it for themselves. Uh, over a period of last few years, we've managed to get this product as a product in the market where tourists can also buy the jewelry that they make. And the community is very happy doing it because they already knew how to do it. They are motivated enough to make the jewelry Uh, while they make it for themselves. They make a few extra ones that tourists can also buy. And with that, uh, it's a good source of income where tourists can go and actually purchase this and uh, avoid these baigas from entering the forest. So that is one. Second, um, we spoke about the nature guides training that we've given to the Pardis with the help of Tath Safaris. We partnered with Tath Safaris. And we've trained the Pardhi uh, members to become nature guides. And they're brilliant nature guides now where uh, tourists can actually go on a walk with them. The, the activity is called Walk with the Pardis. At the same time, they're also trained to do camping with the Pardhis. So there's a program called Camping with the Pardhis, where tourists can also go and camp with them overnight, listen to their stories over a bonfire, have some ethnic Pardhi cuisine with them. And, uh, you know, next morning, go on a walk and come back. So, so that is also available. Apart from that, village walks, cuisines in Panna, different uh, community cuisines in Panna, bandhagat Kanha. All of these are already available. So we've, we've created an experiential tourism product uh, in all of these parks. We're also working in Kuno now. So Kuno has also uh, been our uh, newest destination where we started working. So Kuno also, we will soon be having the experiences that people can go Uh, apart from safaris, do activities with the community so that there are experiences that they can share uh, with each other.
0: Okay, so my final question for you is, out of all these experiences and projects you've been working on, what has been your favorite experience working in the conservation sector?
1: So my favorite experience, I would say, um, is working with, of course, the Pardhi community because it was very, very fascinating for us to even understand the community first before we could work with them. So, uh, you know, it's been a decade, but we still don't feel that, you know, it, it's been a long journey. We still feel that there's so much more to be done. So that's been one of my, uh, you know, best experiences in the wildlife. But apart from that, I think the next best has been working with the forest department very closely. Um, I think close, working with the department has given me so much of insight over what we call, uh, you know, about conservation, uh that we could just join hands with the department and do so much more for our country uh i feel there's been so many debates so many discussions about uh, you know what the department should be doing the department should not be doing but if we all just join hands and make sure uh, we come in as a team i think the department forest department will have so much more strength to do work on ground uh, with simple things like i mentioned providing them with some clothing when jackets so if we could just join hands, that would be the next best thing that I feel uh, we could all do. And I've been thriving, uh, uh, struggling to do that. But but I guess uh, we are getting there. We are getting more help from different people. Tour operators, tourists have actually stepped up, stepped forward. And they've donated. They've actually provided help in kind, in cash. Uh, that has been helping us a lot. So that's, that's uh, another fascination that I have for providing support to the Forest Department.
0: Okay, so that's my final question. Thank you so much for your time. It was a lovely discussion with you today.
1: Thank you so much, Anish. It was it was lovely talking to you.